You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Well, you know that plans change, don't they? That, that things happen in our lives that we don't account for. And I know some of you are going, get back up on stage, you're waking me up. <laughs> Too bad. You know, I've always wanted to do this, and it's not like go to the restroom in the middle of a message, um, because I've thought about doing that as well. But I've always wanted to just come back and hang out near the back. Hi, good to see you. Good, glad you could make it. Thank you. You were here earlier, so I, I, I was pretty sure you were already present. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. This is, this is kind of like after church, before church ever finishes. And so there, there are things that happen in our life that we don't plan for, we don't account for. Um, and you know, like with Anthony, the idea with Anthony is he was headed to West Virginia this past week and ends up having quadruple bypass and not really in the plan. That wasn't part of it. And we all go through things where we plan certain things to happen and we expect certain things as an outcome. Uh, several years ago, well, it was when Becca was small, and I'll tell on Becca because the, the great thing about doing illustrations about Becca is she's not in the room, and so I don't get in near as much trouble as I used to. But you know, long uh, a while back, we sent her to some a friend's house. Um, it was Valentine's Day, and so Deb and I were going out on a date, and so the plan was she would just go hang out with her friends and, and it would be cool. We would go out and, and we wouldn't have to worry because she was in trusted hands. And as we went, we started getting into the evening and we get a phone call. And you know, when you get a phone call from somebody who's watching your child, you just kind of go, oh, nuts. You know, the, the dates aren't supposed to be interrupted by those kind of phone calls. And so we get this phone call. Becca has fallen. She was on a scooter and she rode down the driveway and fell. And we're not too sure about her. And so, and I, I shared this with Wayne uh, a little bit because of Holden's situation. And, and so we were talking about broken bones and wrists and stuff. And, and so we went over to the house, got her, took her to the hospital. They did an x-ray and decided that it was in fact broken, but it was also in a place where they needed to set it. And so they just kind of put it on hold. We went to the orthopedic surgeon the next day, walked into, into there and had this consultation. They said, well, we'll put it in something to, and steady it until we can do surgery. And when we do surgery, we're going to put her under. And so we said, yeah, that's probably a good idea because Becca doesn't like pain real well. And so we decided to go ahead and do that, which makes any parent nervous when you're putting your child completely under anesthesia. And so we did that and, and getting ready, and I shared this with Anthony because yes, the other day when I was in the hospital room, he was getting ready for surgery and they brought him one of those little caps to put over his head. He said, well, you're not covering much hair, but we'll put the cap on anyways. So they put it on and I remember Becca getting just enough of a dose of funny juice to, to want to play with her cap. And she would pull it down over her face and we'd pull it back up. She'd pull it back down. She thought it was hilarious. She didn't realize that she was loopy. And um, it was just a lot of fun. And I, it was before cell phones and, and where we could take video. I wish we had it because it would have been so much fun to bring back now. And especially like if she ever gets married, that day would be perfect. <laughs> so we, we went through that whole scenario. And, and as much as we want to protect that which is ours and hold on to that which is ours, sometimes we don't have any control. What we do is we kind of evaluate the situation, then we take a look at it and say, these are where adjustments need to be made, and we make those in hopes that this is what the outcome will be. And sometimes it works like that, sometimes it doesn't. One year later, and I don't know if we were on a date or what, but Becca got hurt again. And so we went to the ER, and we walked in and said, you know, it's a, it's a wrist, and Okay, we need to do x-rays. So they checked it and they took her back, came back and they said, it's broken. And then shortly after that, they came back again and said, oh, wait a minute. That was last year's x-ray. It's just sprained. And we're like, great. So we have a record for Valentine's Day and Becca's wrist. And it was just one of those things. As much as we wanted to protect her and make sure all the circumstances, her environment was right, it still did not 
result in a completely safe outcome or a complete outcome like we would want it. Well, Paul, 30 years removed from the resurrection, is sharing with Titus and he's saying, hey man, we've been 30 years from the resurrection and the church has been established. However, there's some things that we still need to look at. We still need to evaluate. We need to make some adjustments with the idea of some sort of outcome which is really not under our control. Because the fact is that God is sovereign in circumstances, in all circumstances, and, and people have choice. And so those two things mixed together, as much as we would love to understand it, it's really hard for us to see how those fit. But just know that they both exist. I can choose to go whatever restaurant I want, and the thought that maybe God is directing me to a particular restaurant really kind of gets messed up if the desire is for Chick-fil-A on Sunday, right? So, yeah, it's chicken anything, really, on Sunday. So, so we have to understand God's sovereignty and free choice fit into that. And we can seek to protect and work through some things. But, but still, it's not something that we can totally predict or totally figure out. And so what Paul writes to Titus is that, there is a church established and there are churches in cities, small groups of people that are meeting to proclaim the Lord Jesus and to, to worship together, to be corporately joined together for the building up of the body in love. And so Paul writes to Titus and he says, I understand there are some organizational pieces that you need, some systems, some administration that is part of what has to happen. But also realize that, like we've talked about before, the church is an organism. It, it moves, it breathes, it has life, it is, it is different. And you can come in on any given Sunday, and some people are sitting in the same seats that they always do, but some of you have just enough rebellion in you to change seats every once in a while. And I, that's not a bad kind of rebellion. It's just you're checking out the backs of other people's heads. And so it's an organism, it changes. And we could do flow charts and systems and hierarchies and all these administrative things. And the church needs those. You understand the church needs systems to, to flow because systems or administration actually helps leadership do what leadership does. Without those, everybody goes a different direction. And one of the hardest pieces in church is to get all ministries aligned going the same direction. Because everybody's got an opinion, right? You've got an opinion on how church ought to be done. And somebody else on the other side of the room has another opinion on how church ought to be done. I've got an opinion, but so does Pastor Isaiah, and Pastor Jeremiah, Pastor Wayne. We've all got an opinion. And even those that work in the church office have an opinion on how it will be done. And we all see it from a different perspective. And so although we may say, hey, my way is best, and every one of us could claim that, the truth is that we're all, we all need to be submitted to what God has for us. And so this whole idea of systems and administration kind of keeps leadership in line so that, so that as we follow God, that we are doing what God has called us to do as a body and not going 150 different directions because we have 150 opinions. And so it helps us to stay, to stay relevant and to stay focused on what we should focus on because we are living, changing, and growing. And so there are some things that must be surrendered to him. And part of that is just our lives and the transforming nature of the gospel in our lives. We say, God, what do you want of me? And how are you going to change me to be the person that you want me to be? So Paul's writing to Titus to promote a, a beneficial church health. And we would say, like, like Paul, we desire a biblically healthy environment, right? I mean, we want this place to be a healthy place to serve and a healthy place to worship. We really don't want people throwing things or shooting people or anything, anything like that inside the walls here, right? We're not going to complain, nor are we going to argue over carpet color. Now, if we said, this week we're choosing a color... How many of you would call me and say, this is what I think we ought to do? 
There'd be a few. And if I, and if I said, let's do um, purple paisley, somebody would complain. Probably Debbie. Because I'm not sure purple paisley is a good option. So, so we want this... We want this unified direction for us, and we want to fall under the sovereignty of God. We want church health, and church health is, is relative and, and submitted to God's sovereignty, but there, there are other pieces in this. Context um, affects church health. The context of our environment, um, leadership affects church health. I was reading in, um, in general General McChrystal's, Stanley McChrystal's book, it's called Leaders, Myth and Reality. And he said this, he said, most people think of leadership as the process of influencing a group towards some defined outcome. And he says, and although that is a correct definition, it's not necessarily a complete definition. In fact, he even goes on to say, he says, you can have leaders that are that are going after an outcome that is right, and you can have leaders that are going out after an outcome that is wrong. And you can go out throughout history and see that. Hitler was a leader. And so, so that would be just one example of a leader. You'd say, well, his cause is way off target. And then you can turn around and go to somebody else who's, whose cause, we would say, is right on target. And leadership... Leadership in the middle of that can go, it can go either way. And this is what he says. He says, leadership is contextual. Circumstances define leadership in a lot of ways. Because leadership, as it's defined, also has with it followers. If followers aren't following leadership, then, then the leadership definition that looking for an outcome can be skewed. So you can have great leader with no followers and it doesn't make any difference. Outcomes are reliant far more far, on far more than one individual. Not all leadership rests on one person's shoulders. It's usually on a group. And it requires that followers have a sense of purpose and meaning. And so what General McChrystal does in his book is he goes through several leaders throughout history and he says, this is, these were the good things about them. These were the bad things about them. This is how their leadership affected world history. And it's an interesting book. Tony Dungy would, would, would say there are a couple things regarding leadership, but leadership is influence, but leadership also is a result of somebody submitted to God's will. See, the Lord, as 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord looks at the heart. It's just not the outward appearance. And so he said, okay, so leadership is extremely important to the health of any organization. And so what Paul tells Titus, that he is to continue the work that Paul had started in setting up leadership or recognizing and setting up leadership for the organization to flourish but recognizing it according to what God's principles are. And so Paul writes this, and it's the understand that there's always an outside analysis of the church, but there's also an inside analysis of the church. We get judged by attitudes and actions, and leadership is part of that. And so we have to ask, we ask questions like, does the church meet my needs? That may be one, but or is there a place where I can serve? There are all kinds of things, and leadership helps us understand, and understanding leadership helps us understand what a healthy environment looks like and also where we can plug in. How can we be the person that God wants us to be in a healthy church environment? Mark Deaver, in the definition of healthy church, and we're going to define church health first, defines it this way, a healthy church is one that increasingly reflects God's character as it has been revealed in His Word. And I would agree with that. And so we ought to be reflecting God in everything we do. That's where we start. And one of the key components is healthy church leadership. Now, before we get too far in this, 
I want to make some statements that when we talk about healthy church leadership is that if we talk about leadership, some of you are going, I'm not a leader. Well, right up front, I just want to tell you that there are qualities that we'll deal with in this section in Titus, that although Paul says, Titus, these are the things to look for in healthy church leadership, they're not things that are exclusive to healthy, healthy church leadership. They can apply to you. So nobody's really off the hook this morning. So I really want all of you to squirm just a bit. And when we look at this and say, okay, God, what are you teaching me in this? Where, is, where am I in this definition of leadership? And although I may not be considered a leader, what kind of follower am I? What kind of believer am I? Titus 1, and we'll start at verse 1. And, and go through verse 9, it kind of, because it kind of sets us up for what we should understand by just understanding what we've already talked about in verses 1 through 4. Would you stand as we go through this? Titus chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And if you're not really sure where to find it in your Bible, find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Keep going to the right just a little bit past First and Second Timothy, and we'll, you'll find Titus. So Titus chapter 1, starting at verse 1, says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time, manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of our God and Savior. So Paul's telling us who he is, why he's writing, and to whom he's writing. He says, To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now we get to verse 5. Some specific instruction. For this reason, I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not, a, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, Loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able, to both, will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And if you remember when we started this, we, we said the context of even chapter 2 as we looked at that and started looking at older women, younger women, older men, younger men, and we'll get to the men part in a couple weeks, that this whole idea came out of this, that there were people in the church that were professing Christ, but were teaching wrong. And so Paul is leading into that with this idea of what church leadership, a piece of that ought to look like. And so although this is a list, it's not an exhaustive list that describes church leadership. So you may be seated. So church health is important. Why is it important? A church, a church very quickly is best able to fulfill its purpose for existence within God's story when it operates in health. We don't do our best work when we're sick. I don't do my best work if allergies have kicked up. When I was in Atlanta in my very first church, the secretaries could tell if I was having an issue with allergies. I mean, I would come in sneezing. There are occasions where I come in here and I've, uh, I've just got the box of tissue sort of attached to the hip. And I'll just go through it and it's just like, uh, this stinks. And in Atlanta, I would, it's before all the good stuff came out, all the good medicines came out for allergies. So really all you had was Allegra. Or not Allegra, all you had was Benadryl. That's what it was, Benadryl. And you know what Benadryl does, right? 
Benadryl kind of makes you like a, a zombie. And so you walk through the halls, you go, I don't even know what I'm doing, I'm here. And I could, I could take the Benadryl and look at my Bible and it looked like, it looked like just a smear of ink. You couldn't really read it. And so I, I would take my Benadryl and, and to offset the Benadryl, I would drink some Jolt Cola and, and try and find this happy medium of getting through my allergies while staying awake. And, and it was just hard to, hard to exist in health in that situation. And you know how it is. If you're sick, you don't do as well as when you're healthy. Health is part of, it, a part of being at peak performance. Uh, athletes do it all the time. They look for this, this one sweet spot of peak performance. And in doing that, and if everybody does that and they work together as a team, they can accomplish much. And so the idea of church health is extremely important to us. And we have to know what our purpose is. And our purpose is to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ who impact the world. We exist as a church community connected to God and to others, right? And it's essentially who we are and what we're about is making disciples that make disciples, that turn around and make disciples. And so when... Paul's talking about leadership. We have to understand healthy environments dictate the need for healthy leadership. Steinke wrote, Peter Steinke wrote that he said, mature leaders serve as the congregation's immune system in the face of potential disease. We're all subject to that. It's the reason that you wash your hands and so you don't catch something, right? I mean, you got that little squirt bottle when you go to a restaurant? Or if you're back here greeting, maybe a big bottle. It's an immune system in the face of potential disease. So healthy leadership serves in that capacity. They watch out so we can address problems. He says they bring clarity. Mature leaders bring clarity and objectivity to a tense situation. Tension is part of church life because the church is an organism that constantly changes. And so when we look at a healthy church leader, these are the things. First thing, a healthy leader is forged with godly character. A healthy leader is forged with godly character. Verses 5 and 6, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, that if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And before we go too far, what Paul is telling Titus is to appoint elders in these different cities around Crete for the purpose of healthy churches. And there's a plurality of leaders here. And so we need not operate under the assumption that one leader sets the tone for everything. There is a plurality of leaders and so, although I get to stand up here and communicate on a regular basis to the church, not all the leadership rests on my shoulders. It's why we do deacons meetings. It's why we do ministry team meetings. It's why we do staff meetings is to put everything in, in a place where it's going the same direction and aligns in ministry. We have particular responsibilities, levels of positional leadership, but it is a plurality of leaders within the church. And so what Paul tells Titus is appoint elders, a group of people for a particular reason, and that's leading the church. See, there is wisdom in a group. Proverbs 1.5 says, a wise man will hear an increase in learning, so it doesn't it doesn't mean stop learning things, but keep learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. It's the idea that I'm going to keep learning, but part of my learning is within the context of a multiplicity of leadership or leaders. The wisdom of counsel rests in the character of the people. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 12 and the same stories in 2 Chronicles chapter 10, we read the story of Rehoboam. And he became king. 
But there was a, a weight on the people, and they said, we, we really want you to change the way you do things. And, and the elders came to him and said, this is what you ought to do. And what Rehoboam says, I don't want to listen to this group. I want to go over to my friends. I want to listen to this group. And he forsook, and, and Scripture says, he forsook the counsel of the elders. He left alone wise counsel. There is a degree at which we have to qualify what is wise counsel and then follow that wise counsel. And so the healthy leader is forged with godly character. And what does it mean to forge? To be forged. It means to be heated and hammered. It's the best way I can put it. I got to go out the other day, play golf with a guy who is a blacksmith and a welder. And I was looking at this and just thinking about thinking about him and what he does for a living and Realize that, man, your job is hard and it's hot. And it's great when it's 20 degrees outside and sleet or snow or whatever it is. But it's terrible when it's 95 and you're working with a furnace. That's got to be awful. But his job is to take something and heat it up so it becomes soft and then it's hammered to create something that's beautiful. And it's what God does with us. Blackaby writes... Spiritual leadership does not happen by accident. It develops as God matures people in their character as well as in their relationship with Him. Character includes wisdom, integrity, honesty, and moral purity. Swindoll writes, God crafts the character of a person using His experience as tools for shaping. So how is God shaping you? What's he doing in your life that's, that's kind of beating you, not in a bad way, but beating you into a shape that is beautiful and reflects his image? You know, some of us need more hammering than others. But I would say everybody in the room needs some. That's why we're still here, isn't it? We want God to take us, and although it's a painful thing to have somebody beat on us because of the shape that he's creating, it is God at work in us. Sometimes it's to move you out of the pew and to speed you up in life. Sometimes it's to slow you down in life. Sometimes it's to give you a different perspective on life. But God is in the work of forging the character of each one of us. Paul wrote, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And he gives them some things about character that, that need to rise to the forefront. The first one is that this person ought to be an elder. And that literally means to be of age. But why, why have somebody of age? Because they've lived through some life, right? That doesn't mean that they have to be, that, that we're, set out to look for leaders in the church and all of them need to be 90. It's not what we're saying. There's a maturity in here and a life experience that comes with just living life and being through some things. And so Paul says, appoint elders in these places. People who seem to be marked by wisdom and spiritual maturity. And then he breaks it down a little bit more. He says, here's some characteristics. To be above reproach. And that just means to be unaccusable. Somebody can't walk up off the street and say, hey, I want to accuse you of this and it have any merit at all. Uh, who is the biggest accuser of us? Satan is, isn't he? I mean, it's, part of his, it's just part of his character to come before God and say, I want to accuse this person. And we feel that. When we mess up, we kind of feel that. We, we have this, this whispering in our ear that you're not worthy before Almighty God because you messed up. And, and so we, we sit there and we sometimes allow that to paralyze us. And so although we may be accused by Satan, the idea here has to do with, do they have a relationship with God? And can really anybody from the outside just push in on that person and find things that they are faulty of that disqualifies them from leadership? It doesn't mean that you're perfect. 
Honestly, if you look at Scripture, there's nobody that is presently breathing in this room that can qualify as perfect. So when we look at this, the trait is difficult in our culture because the essence of our culture means accusation. We see that all the time. But the standard is not society's interpretation. The standard is God's word and relationship to God. Reproach is associated with reputation. Remember Nehemiah, when he prayed, he prayed that the reproach of Jerusalem, the reproach of the people would be gone. That they'd be able to rebuild the walls and the gates so that the people and the nation would no longer be a reproach among the others that are onlookers. Leaders promote and guard the reputation of the body of Christ and the Lord both inside and outside the church. Second piece of this is that they be husband of one wife. That literally means a one wife husband. It's a a one woman man kind of thing. And and there have been, and we're not going to get into it because I'm not sure I can. There, there are multiple debates over a long period of time about exactly what this means. Because some will interpret it, they've, they've never been divorced, or they've been divorced once, but then, then it's changed, and, and they've been forgiven. And, and so there's all kinds of different ways you can go with this. But I think there are some really clear principles that, that we get from understanding what it means to be a leader and the husband of one wife. And maybe this will help clarify at least the the premise for why Paul writes this to Titus. See, success or failure in marriage never thrives or collapses solely on the actions or attitudes of one individual. I've never done marriage counseling where there's been some trouble where I could say it's all on one side of this coin. It's always both sides. In some form or fashion, it's on both sides. And it may be just more, more evident or more public or more noticeable on one side than the other, but it always requires two. And that's why God puts people together in a marriage as helpmates for one another, and they're joined as one flesh. And when one flesh does not operate as one flesh, it becomes a problem. And it's usually on both sides. I think the other reason that Paul writes this is because a husband of one wife indicates a commitment, a singular commitment to an individual in a relationship that God established early on, like Genesis. God established marriage as a a connection and a joining between one woman and one man. And it's a commitment that even goes through hard stuff. We give up on marriage very easily now. Our culture teaches us it's okay because we often want what makes us happy as opposed to what God has called us to do. You want a definition of happy? Go look at Jeremiah and ask him as a prophet, were you real happy? His following God was not defined by the word happy. It was defined by the word commitment and allegiance, and surrender. I think for us to understand this, it goes a little bit beyond that because we could say it's just a husband of one wife, but if we take that by itself, we can come up with a definition. But if we separate it, and if we separate it from the next part, I think we miss out on what God may be saying in here. Because it says that they should be, or have children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. I think there's a combination in here that those things go together. I don't, I don't want to like put a period at the end of husband of one wife and forget the second part of this. Now, I want to be real careful to, to say that having children that are of the faith and not accused of, of dissipation or rebellion is, is a little tenuous. Because children make their decisions and sometimes we don't have a choice. What 
what Paul is writing here is he says, look at, look at the lives of the children and do they flee and are prodigals as a regular form of lifestyle? There are reasons I think Paul writes these things and I think there are reasons they go together and you may disagree with my interpretation. And some commentators have said if a potential leader cannot lead at home, he should not lead in the church. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But when I put husband of one wife and this idea of children of the faith not being accused of dissipation or rebellion, what I think it leans toward is can a leader lead without distraction? I know that if, if I were to ever be in a situation and and I've seen this where a husband, well, no, I'm not even going to talk about me. Let's just say a husband and wife, and they get divorced. There are circumstances that surround that divorce that make it very difficult to focus on anything else but that. And even if they remarry, there is still a connection with the spouse that they've divorced. And maybe the children of that relationship that make it really, really hard to say, I have this and I have this family, but then I have this other piece of my family that's somewhere else, and yet I'm supposed to lead in church. The same would be true of children. That was a question that I had to wrestle with when Stephen seemed to walk away from the church. How distracted was I for that that period of time knowing that I'm supposed to be leading church, leading in church and leading adults in church, and yet I've got this son over here who's doing things that are completely against what the church even believes. Am I qualified to be a leader? And I think that gets evaluated over the course of time as opposed to one instance. And what I think Paul is telling Titus, he's saying, look for, look for guys that cannot be accused but also look for guys that have an allegiance to a woman that have their eyes set on a single woman. If that's their wife, their eyes ought to be there and not somewhere else. And they ought to have children that don't distract from your ability to lead in the church, in the health of the church. Leadership within the church requires an astute sensitivity to the direction of the Holy Spirit. In either one of these cases, whether it's divorce or, or a separation or a child that seems to be going a different direction, they can be distractions, heavy distractions to what God may be doing, and they kind of mess with our ability to be sensitive to God's voice. And so why Paul talks about elders and being of age it's because you can look at their life over a period of time and not over a very short period of time, but it's longer. And you can evaluate it that way. So a healthy leader is forged with godly character. Character is important. Steinke wrote this as a warning. He says, change the position of people in a system and they will function differently. Change their functioning and that will appear to have a different and they will appear to have a different nature. I want you to soak that in for just a minute. And this is why character is so important to leadership. If somebody is not of character when they rise to the position of leadership, they t- they sometimes can take on a nature that is different than what you observed before they took the position. It becomes one of those I love the power or I love the control, or I love having my way. I love having a say in this. So their nature changes. And that's why we look for somebody over a long period of time, shows leadership, allegiance to Christ, and is steady in their following of Christ. Self-interest, power, status, and control affect a healthy church. And so they don't need to be part of leadership. Second thing is a healthy leader guards his conduct. Paul uses the term overseer, and it's an interchangeable word. 
It's a term used for a manager or steward of something. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. So we get all these knots. This is what they're not. He says, but hospitable, loving what is, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. And, and you could try and match those up, and they don't match up exactly, but they do match up to some extent. The negatives in this are not self-willed or self-pleasing. To not be prone to anger and to not be a drunkard. And we talked about that with regards to, to women and what older women teach younger women. Don't let anything to, to be part of your life that voluntarily distracts you from being sensitive to God's voice. Not pugnacious or argumentative and not greedy. Conduct is a result of character. So the positives in this must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Well, what is hospitable? Well, let's just go through these for a second. What's hospitable? Just being welcoming to guests, right? We, we want hospitable people in the foyer to greet guests. I mean, there, there doesn't really need to be this sort of glad you're here. Wish you were wearing something different. You know, that, that's not the, really the kind of greeter we want in the foyer, right? Greeters ought to be hospitable. They ought to have an understanding of what it means to be generous. This is how you should steward your home or the rest of your life is to, to be generous. And, and that the idea of hospitable is not really holding on to something that you ought not hold on to because your real grip ought to be on Christ. Um, in the last several weeks, Mike Randall's been through some stuff with regards to his, his job. He's had some change. He started a new job, which is a praise. But in that, he also learned a couple of things. So, Mike, would you take about, about 45 seconds, or 43 and a half seconds, and, um, and just tell us a little bit about that and that, that piece of your journey. It's the, it's the purple one. There you go. Um, uh, well, you know how sometimes the Lord has to get your attention. And sometimes he'll use a two-by-four. Uh, I think he used a cinder block on this. Um, it was a huge change for me. It was a Thursday, about five weeks ago. Uh, there was a meeting with a customer. And suddenly I got a meeting for the CEO in which he decided to let more than 50% of the company go in one business. So immediately, uh, the lights go on now, and uh, I also immediately had to notify two of my uh, tech accountability and prayer partners in the morning as well. And um, I had a bunch of panic attacks for three days. Uh, in my mind, I went with, okay, you're over 50, um, you're not going to get hired, um, you're not good enough.
I realized as my shortcoming were that I was not focusing on Christ. I was focusing on the things that He gave me that I can do in my life. So that's the lesson I learned. Praise the Lord. It only took three weeks <laughs> before I had an offer and ultimately the door. That's good. Thanks, Mike. It's interesting. I've been in situations where I've needed to learn something and, and we'd be in a certain situation and Deb would like, would be like, hurry up and learn this so that something else can take place. And, you know, for, for Mike, it was three weeks. For others, it'll be longer. For others, it could be even shorter. But it's learning to let go. And, and so when we talk about leadership and looking at leadership and what healthy church leadership looks like, I have to say they have to be they have to be in a place where they don't hold on to the things that are temporal, but they hold on to the things that are eternal. That, that they're not, that, that they're hospitable in, in the sense that there are only certain things that really hold their attention and hold their allegiance. Second thing is to, to love what is good, and that's pretty self-explanatory. I guess the opposite of not loving what is evil would fall into that sensible, or it requires discernment, or uh, do they have the ability to see problems and issues from various sides and respond accordingly? To be just or right, according to God's Word, to be devout or dedicated. Uh, I would think that healthy church leadership has some of their time spent in corporate worship. And there's an allegiance to the body of Christ corporately in this place. I don't know that you can be a church leader in a particular place and be absent 50% of the time. Because it just means your allegiance is in a couple different places. And I, I understand that, that there are seasons where you go through things. You know, maybe it's a, a parent that's in failing health or, or something's going on, but that ought not be the pattern of an elder. Somebody that's been around for a while. Self-controlled. See, it's very similar to, to, to being sensible. It, it would be the same thing we would read about in Galatians 5, in the fruit of the Spirit, that they would exhibit that. And really, if we're going to look at church leadership, we just have to understand that these things are just part of the influence we have. I want to make two statements, and you're going to say, well, they disagree with one another, but listen to them. So leadership in the church is not about influence. And then I would say leadership in the church is all about influence. It's not about influencing for your personal agenda. It's about influencing to further the agenda of God. That's why leadership exists. A healthy leader guards his conduct. And then lastly, a healthy leader is passionate about his commission. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Hear what he's saying. Their job is to help in understanding sound doctrine and the teaching of Christ to be able to come along folks to help them to understand what is right doctrinally. And then those that, whether they're within or outside of the church, to be able to proclaim truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then Paul also wrote to Timothy, that there will be a time when people not endure sound doctrine. They're wanting, wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus and with the same idea that healthy church leaders help the church understand what Scripture teaches and helps lead a church in the, in, to be healthy biblically. An overseer has a responsibility within the local church to be part of the building up of the body of Christ. 
So a healthy leader is forged with godly character, guards his conduct, and is passionate about his commission. But I would ask you, what pieces of this apply to you? Where is there an area in your life where you say, you know, if I were to just qualify myself, not necessarily as a church leader, but as a follower of Christ, am I one that is hospitable? Or am I holding on to things I don't need to hold on to? Am I argumentative? Am I sensible? Am I devout? Am I, is my primary allegiance to Christ? Or do I kind of filter Christ in on this and say, yeah, he's in the, he's in the top three or four, but it kind of depends on the circumstances of my week, whether he's number one or whether he's number four or five. And I would say, God's not really interested in being fourth or fifth on your list. God is interested in being the first on your list. Everything else fades. Everything else is second or third. Deb's not number one. She may think so at times. You probably have a spouse that could elbow you right now and say, yeah, but Christ ought to be one. Following Jesus ought to be the priority. And then that that relationship to your spouse and and to kids and to church and to, to job ought to fall under that. So where would you say you are in relation to the things that God calls you to be? You see, we talk about this in in terms of healthy church leadership, but it's really just leadership. We look for elders to serve within the church, and in this church, there's a plurality of of elders, but we don't even call them elders. Um, And you could do pastoral staff, and I, I mentioned some others that are part of this. And we've got a group of guys that meets once a month. They're called deacons, but essentially they have some elder responsibilities. But we don't call them that. But they have some spiritual responsibilities within the body to keep peace and to further lead our church. They're called to serve because they're fall, they fall under that deacon piece. But you remember what deacon, the requirement for a deacon was in the book of Acts? To be men full of wisdom and the Spirit. Because they were going to have to deal with argumentative widows who thought that they deserved more than they were getting. And so they kind of had to keep peace and and help the direction of the church. And they were servants. These guys are the same. And we could match those things up. And I would say whether you're serving in an official position or not, there are places where you are an elder serving in some capacity just may not have positional eldership. Some of your voices are loud. And it's okay, because you're showing leadership. See, leadership's needed within the church, but it's also needed within the marketplace. Blackaby says to be a spiritual leader is just as essential in the marketplace as it is in the church. So the question is, how are the qualities of leadership in you? Do you have them and are you willing to be molded by God so that you can be a leader wherever God has placed you? Are you willing to be hammered? Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.